Let me pray as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we uh, would get a big view of you in your word tonight. Father, use me in my weakness to preach your word uh, faithfully. And I pray that you give us all hearts to receive it by faith. And I pray that we would um, be encouraged to fear the Lord this evening. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, on the screen behind me is Kane Tanaka. On the 2nd of January this year, she turned 117 years old, having been born at the beginning of 1903. Uh, she is the oldest living person uh, known on earth, according to Guinness World Records. Um, just to put things into perspective, um, she was being born when Australia was two years old. Uh, in an interview she did last year, uh, she was asked what she thought is the key to living a long life, and here's what she said. Wake up early each morning, develop your brain through reading and maths, stay active and social, and eat lots of chocolates and drink lots of coffee. Um, I think I'm doing one of those four. You can guess which one. Um, See, so imagine how good it would be, though, if... if uh, how good it would be if all you had to do to stay on track to a long life was to follow those four rules. But just imagine how much better it would be if someone gave you the key, not just to a longer life in this world, but eternal life, life that extends beyond this world. Life where, with God, where you can be confident that the living God will never leave you nor forsake you, that you're never on your own. Now, the good news of our passage tonight, Deuteronomy chapter 31, is that we are given the key to eternal life through the word of God spoken through another very old person by the name of Moses. Um, but the key to eternal life does not lie in what we eat or what we drink, but in a sense, ultimately in what we fear. You see, this passage tells us that if God's people Israel are going to live long in the land, the promised land, they must learn to fear their Lord, the Lord their God first and foremost. And as Christians, if we are going to keep trusting Jesus and go on to enjoy that eternal life he promises us, then we too need to learn to fear the Lord Jesus first and foremost. So the really two big ideas in this text that I've broken up the outline with, do not fear the forces that are against you, and two, learn to fear the God who is with you. So first, do not fear the forces that are against you. That is the first message given to Israel in this chapter of Deuteronomy. And you see, at this point in Israel's history, they're about to cross over into the promised land, and in doing so, they're about to face down all the enemies that live in the promised land. Now, if that wasn't scary enough, Moses reminds them at the start of this chapter that he's not going in with them. See, so look at verses 1 and 2 in your Bibles. Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old, and I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. Now, you can imagine the fear that um, is possibly growing inside the camp of Israel at this moment. As they think about entering into that hostile territory, 
on their own, facing down those gigantic enemies who live in gigantic fortresses. See, that was the fear of the first generation of Israel that was rescued out of Egypt 40 years earlier, wasn't it? Remember what that generation had said. We covered it back in Deuteronomy chapter 1 many months ago. That first generation said, where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there, those giant people. See, Israel's fear then had got the better of them. It had led them to faithlessness. They saw the enemy as too big, too strong, and so they refused to trust God and go in. And you see, the second generation of Israel, Israel we've got now before us, they're kind of at risk of succumbing to the same fear. Now, when our friends are scared or worried about something, I suspect we often try to comfort them by seeking to minimise the situation for them. You know, we say stuff like, oh, don't worry, I'm sure that question won't be on the exam. Don't worry. Don't worry, I'm sure your employer just wants to have a chat with you to see how everything's going. But the thing is, you can't really minimise giants, can you? And notice that Moses doesn't try to minimise Israel's situation going into the Promised Land. He doesn't say to Israel, don't worry, I'm sure the reports of their size and the, the size of their cities are grossly over-exaggerated. You'll be right without me. He doesn't say that, does he? Now Moses is telling Israel, you guys are not on your own. God is with you. And yes, the enemy is big, but your God is bigger. See, the big reason Israel has not to fear in this moment of time is based not on who they are, but on who God is, his presence with them, his power to defeat the enemy. See, look at how Moses reassures Israel in verses 3 to 5. Moses says, the Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. You're not going to be on your own. He will destroy these nations before you and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said, and the Lord will do to them what he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. Moses is saying, you've seen God do this before. You can be confident he'll do it again if you trust him. Verse 5, the Lord will deliver them to you and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. See, Moses is reminding Israel that they need to look at this situation through God's eyes, not through their eyes. God will be present with you, Israel. God will be powerful to bring you victory. You'll possess the land he has given you. The enemy is big, but the God who fights for you is bigger. Uh, there's this wonderful and famous scene in the movie Crocodile Dundee where Mick Dundee and his love interest Sue are walking along the streets of some dark American city at night and they're held up at knife point by a mugger. 
Terrified, Sue says, Mick, give him your wallet. He's got a knife. Mick then laughs, pulls out a huge Bowie knife, and says, Ah, that's not a knife. This is a knife. The mugger then runs away with his pasty-looking mate, terrified. You see, coming face to face with a mugger holding a pocket knife is actually quite terrifying. I'm not sure if anyone's been in that situation, but I'm sure it actually would be terrifying. But knowing there is a guy with a bigger knife who is with you in that moment, that changes everything. See, the enemy is big, but the God who fights for you is bigger. And that is why Moses can tell Israel in verse 6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He won't leave you when the battle heats up. No, quite the opposite. He will never leave you, nor forsake you. And notice that the same thing is said to Joshua as Moses, Moses prepares him to lead the Israelites. Verse 7, be strong and courageous. Israel and Joshua don't need to fear, but to show courage that is rooted in faith in who God is. The enemy is big, but the God who fights for them is bigger. See, like Israel, we can contemplate what might come in the future and actually be utterly terrified by it. Uh, maybe it's like a future fear of a bad diagnosis by the doctor. Maybe it's the future fear of long-term illness, long-term loneliness, either as a single person or as an unhappily married person. Maybe it's the fear of failing your subjects or disappointing your parents. Now, it might sound a little bit weird, but when I look into my future, one of the things that scares me is the thought that I might one day be imprisoned for teaching biblical truth publicly. Now, I know you're all thinking, just relax, Chris, we're not there yet, um, but I'm young, you see. There's a lot more Chris to go. Um, now, I reckon I can cope with the idea of paying a fine, uh, but there's something about the idea of being separated from my wife and kids, thrown into a cold, dark prison with a whole bunch of other random guys that's actually quite scary. Now, you, again, you might think I'm being a little bit irrational, but our fears don't always have to be rational for them to scare us, do they? And so I have to think, in that moment... How can I be strong and courageous in the face of that fear? What will stop me from succumbing to my fear and, and failing to teach the Bible publicly or when I preach at weddings? Or worse, walking away from God entirely because it's just getting all too hard? What will hold you fast when your faith is tested by your fears. Well, it's the same as it was for Israel, isn't it? We need to remember that our fears are big, they're scary, but our Lord Jesus is bigger. 
You see, in coming to know Jesus, the New Testament tells us that we come to know God's ultimate power and his ultimate presence in our lives. Think about how the Gospels describe Jesus. Jesus just says, stop, and a storm on the sea comes to a halt. Jesus says, be healed, and people are cured of the worst kind of illnesses you can imagine. Jesus says, come out, and evil spirits shriek as they flee. Jesus says, get up, and a dead child rises to life. Jesus says, it is finished, as he's dying on the cross, and Satan is defeated. Justice is done, our sin is atoned for, and forgiveness is given through faith in him. You see, there is no person, no power, no situation that Jesus isn't bigger than. Persecution, jail, will never have the final word over our lives. Illness will not never have the final word. Loneliness will never have the final word. Grief will never have the final word. Death will never have the final word. Jesus has the final word. Jesus will give us grace to endure. Jesus' final word says we are never alone and that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus' word says he will keep us secure in his love and he will deliver on his promise to give us life that extends beyond the battles of this life and reaches into the new heavens and earth in which sin and suffering will be no more. And we know this because Jesus was raised from the dead. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus here tonight, but you do know the fears of this world, let me encourage you to turn to Jesus this evening and actually find an eternal security with God in coming to trust him that will never let you down. Uh, following his death and resurrection, Jesus went up to the mountainside with his disciples and said these words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, nothing you fear is as big as I am. I'm the boss now. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And what? Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, our fears are big, but Jesus is bigger. Do not fear the forces against you. But second, learn to fear the God who is with you. See, that is the second big message to Israel in this chapter. Learn to fear the God who is with you. Now, to trust God and know his powerful presence in your life, as we've just thought about, is a glorious thing. But to reject God, to provoke his judgment, is actually a terrifying thing. Now, when the Bible talks about uh, the fear of the Lord, it's not talking about the kind of fear that kind of makes a servant cower away from an angry and abusive 
uh, an unpredictable master. The Bible's idea of fearing God is to view him with a sense of awe at who he is as the infinitely good and holy God, the creator God, the God that has no rival, the just God who cannot tolerate sin, the gracious God who shows undeserved love to sinners. To fear God is to recognize the absolute craziness of ever living outside of relationship with him. To fear God is to praise him, to thank him, to obey him. See, Israel's big problem throughout their whole history was that they had a dangerous lack of fear when it came to God. Just think about that golden calf incident that if you've been here for a while you would have heard about. One minute Israel is experiencing the most uh, amazing experience at Mount Sinai. The mountains trembling, the smoke and the fires billowing and they're hearing the very words of God speak to them. They experience that majesty and then the next minute they go making a golden calf and worship it. But you see, Israel's lack of fear wasn't just a past problem. God lets them know it's going to be a future problem too. See, cast your eyes in your Bibles down a little bit to verses 16 and 18. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, You are going to go rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break my covenant I made with them. And here's why it's dangerous. Verse 17, And in that day I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and calamities will come on them, and in that day they will ask, Have not these disasters come on us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face in that day because all their wickedness in turning to other gods... And again in verse 20, God says, When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on earth to their ancestors, and they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and my covenant. And did you notice that Moses wants to have his say as well? Look at verse 27. For I know, says Moses, how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you've been rebellious against the Lord while I'm still alive, how much more will you rebel after I die? And he goes in for another bat. Verse 29, For I know that after my death you are sure to become utterly corrupt and to turn away from, uh, turn from the way I have commanded you. In days to come, disaster will fall on you because you do evil in the sight of the Lord and arouse his anger by what your hands have made. See, Israel has a dangerous lack of fear towards God. Time and again, they stop seeing God for the holy God he is. And they start to believe the lie that they can go on committing idolatry against him, rejecting him, and everything's going to be fine. Actually, that's the great lie that our world, and sometimes we can believe. Uh, In his book, Humilitas, John Dixon tells the story of three young men who hopped on a bus in Detroit 
in the 1930s and tried to pick a fight with a lone man sitting at the back of the vehicle. Uh, these boys insulted the man. He didn't respond. They turned up the heat of their insults. He said nothing. Now, eventually, the stranger stood up. He was bigger than they estimated, much bigger. He reached into his pocket, handed them his business card, and walked off the bus and on his way. As the bus drove on, the young men gathered around the card to read the words, Joe Lewis, boxer. They had just tried to pick a fight with a man who would be heavyweight boxing champion of the world from 1937 to 1949, the greatest boxer of all time. It was said of Joe Lewis that he could knock out a horse with one punch. Probably not best to ask how he got that reputation. Um, but you see, Israel's fear, lack of fear, is dangerous. In their idolatry and rebellion, they were insulting the champion. In their blindness, they repeatedly rejected the one who can deliver that fatal blow. But what I find remarkable about God all through Deuteronomy, actually all through the Bible, is that he acts with grace and patience with his rebellious people. I like Joe Lewis, he doesn't wipe them out in one conclusive hit. They do feel his pain. They are exiled to Babylon. And God actually knows what Israel is disposed to do, verse 21. But instead of running away from Israel, getting as far away from that idolatrous people as he possibly could, God actually still commits himself to her. And because God is faithful and loves his sinful people, he actually gives them three provisions to help them learn to fear God as they enter the promised land. He gives them his word, his song, his leader. First, God provides Israel with his word. Uh, God's revelation of himself in the book of the law that we've just looked through over all the months past. Uh, as we've seen over the past month, this law speaks of who God is, what God has done, and how God's people should live. If Israel is going to learn to fear the Lord and keep trusting him, they must make reading his word, his law, a regular pattern of their life. See, look at verses 9 to 11. Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord uh, and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, in the year for cancelling debts, during the Feast of the Tabernacles, when all Israel comes together to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Israel, you guys need to keep hearing God's word to you. Why? Verse 12 tells us, so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of the law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You see, fearing comes 
from learning the word. And learning the word comes through hearing the word. And hearing the word comes through reading the word. Uh, The word teaches God's people to fear the Lord. The word rebukes God's people when they fail to fear God and rebel against him. It warns them. And we see that later in verse 26, don't we? Take this book, the law, and place it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. See, we're no better than Israel. We are capable of slipping into a dangerous lack of fear of the Lord. Are we capable of ignoring God? Of capable of living on our own terms? We're capable of justifying our selfishness, our idolatry, our sexual immorality. We are capable of thinking we can have a foot in both camps, the God of this world and the God of the universe. If we're going to learn to fear God and say yes to Jesus and no to our sinful instincts, we need to be hearing his word and asking God to give us hearts of faith to live by it. And so if you're new at Bundy, if you've never been here before, let me just tell you, this is why we want to major on the word here at our church. Both Old Testament and New Testament. We read it, we preach it, we pray it, we sing it, we study it uh, midweek. We learn to fear God by reading, listening, and learning his word. But second, God provides Israel with a song to help them learn to fear God. Now, sometimes songs get stuck in our heads like a, kind of like a written text can't do. Uh, The tune sort of plays in our mind. We remember it. The words then come easily with the tune. Sometimes this is really annoying, like when Frozen Let It Go gets stuck in your head. I have three daughters. It's kind of always in the back somewhere. Um, But then sometimes it's a real blessing, like when the hymn Amazing Grace gets stuck in your head. See, I've been singing that song Uh, in church as long as I can remember. My mother even bought a tea towel with the lyrics of Amazing Grace so we knew how to sing it doing the dishes. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You see, they're good words to have stuck in your mind because every time you sing them, they actually remind you of a glorious truth, that you're a sinful wretch, that I'm a sinful wretch, but God has been gracious and saved us. The song God gives to Israel reminds them that at their heart they are sinful wretches, but that he is a gracious saviour. Now, we're going to hear more about that song next week because it's all through chapter 32. Neil will preach on that. But you see, this song that's going to be sung in next week, sorry, read, we're not going to sing it, although that gives me an idea. Um, <laughs> this song that God gives Israel is designed to get stuck in their heads. Notice that in verse 21. See it there? It will not be forgotten by their descendants. 
God is going to make sure in his sovereignty that this song gets stuck in their heads. Uh, It's going to be a bit like a bad Frozen hit. It will be stuck there for good. But that will actually be good for Israel. Because in the future, when they do forget God, they'll still remember the song. It will declare God's faithfulness, it will confront them with their sin, and it will be a witness against them. See that verses 19 and 21. It will remind them when they're suffering under God's curse, why they're suffering. And it will teach them to fear him once again. It will point them back to God's grace. God's provision for a song for Israel, I think, reminds us actually of the good role music plays in teaching us to fear God. Uh, We are what we sing at some level, I think. If we sing fluff about God, we'll be more likely to believe fluff about God. If we sing powerful truths about God, we'll be more likely to believe powerful truths about God. And I'm actually thankful for our music teams, that they are faithful in teaching us and and leading us in songs that speak of the glorious truths of God and his gospel. We learn to fear God when we sing songs that proclaim the glorious truths of who he is and what he's done for sinners. Thirdly, God provides Israel with a new leader who will be a model of fear of God. Uh, For 40 years, Israel had been led by Moses, who knew what it meant to fear the Lord. But with Moses' death just around the corner, God gives Israel another leader who will show them what it is to fear God and follow his commands. Joshua is not picked by Israel, but by God. We see that in verses 3, verses 7 to 8, verse 14, where God says he will commission Joshua. And then finally in verse 23, where God says directly to Joshua, Be strong and courageous, for you will bring the Israelites into the land. I promise them on oath, and I myself will be with you. Joshua was not a great leader uh, because of who he was, but because he knew to depend on the God who promised to be with him. And you see that at the end of the book of Joshua, once the land of uh, the promised land is being conquered, Joshua directs the people away from himself and onto the Lord. Joshua 24 uh, verse 14 reads, uh, captures Joshua's words like this, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. And it makes clear that That's what he's going to be doing as well. He's going to be serving the ultimate leader. Look at the end of verse 15 there. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Ruth recently bought a a picture frame with that verse in it. Good choice, I reckon. One of the marks of a good Christian leader is the way they direct people away from themselves and onto Jesus. Because it's Jesus, he's the, he's the one we ultimately need to fear, to love, to listen to. It's actually Jesus who is fearfully awesome 
and yet wonderfully merciful. He's our leader. You see, Jesus is fearfully awesome because it is he who sits on God's throne in heaven. It is Jesus who will be the ultimate judge of us all. It is Jesus who is so majestic in his lordship that when the Apostle John in the book of Revelation actually gets a a vision of Jesus in chapter 1, he is so overwhelmed with Jesus' majesty and glory that he falls down as though dead. To, to reject Jesus is to live with a lack of fear. To reject Jesus and to live with a lack of fear towards him is dangerous and deadly. And yet what the gospel tells us is that Jesus is wonderfully merciful. He came to earth knowing he would be insulted, rejected, killed. But he actually endured all of that so that corrupt humanity, of which Israel's a kind of picture, could find forgiveness and life through trusting him. See, we've all acted like those boys on the bus, but God has shown us mercy by sending us his son, Jesus. Now, the more I've been thinking about this, the more I've been convicted that our fear of the Lord will grow as we simply make use of the good provisions God gives us in the church. Reading his word, seeing his word, committing ourselves to the care of godly leaders, be it pastors, growth group leaders, youth group leaders. Uh, I started by sharing the words of a very elderly person. I'm going to close now by commenting uh, on the words of another very old person. Uh, Polycarp was the 86-year-old Bishop of Smyrna. Uh, Polycarp is reported to have been uh, a disciple of John the Apostle. Polycarp was bound and burnt at the stake for refusing to worship the Roman Emperor by offering a pinch of incense. And when the authorities asked Polycarp to deny Jesus, he replied, 86 years I've served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and saviour? When they told him he would be burned at the stake, he then actually courageously turned the tables on them and said, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But your ignorance of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Now that's a pretty strong statement in some pretty tough circumstances. And ever since I learnt about Polycarp at college, I've been stunned by him. I mean, this is a guy who clearly knows what it is to fear the Lord. He clearly knows what it is to be strong and courageous. This guy who truly believes that Jesus will never leave him nor forsake him. This is a guy who knows Jesus is fearfully awesome and yet wonderfully merciful to grant forgiveness through his death.
But the more I've thought about Polycarp, the more I'm actually convinced that at his heart he was a regular Christian who simply saw Jesus for who the Bible says he is, who simply took hold of the provisions that God had given to him in the church. I suspect for 80 years Polycarp was listening to God's word, singing God's truth like us, learning from godly leaders. See, I assume Polycarp did the regular things of church life for most of his life. And God, in his faithful mercy, made those things bear fruit in Polycarp's moment of need and decision at the end of his life. Uh, there will be many things in life that will cause us to be fearful and put us to the test, that will challenge our faith in Jesus, a hostile work environment where we're just sick of the Christian bashing, a sexual relationship that we don't want to give up, a time of suffering that makes us doubt God's goodness. What will keep us going and holding fast to Jesus in those battles. Well, it's the fear of the Lord that is learned through the words we hear, read from the Bible, the songs we sing, the leaders we learn from. It's the fear of the Lord that says the almighty king of heaven and earth has committed himself to me, a sinner. He died for me. Without Jesus, I am Nothing. But with Jesus, with Jesus holding me secure for eternity, I have everything. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent us the Lord Jesus. Thank you that with him we have everything, forgiveness, eternal life, We've been given of your spirit. Father, help us not to be overcome by the fears in our life. They are big, Lord, but help us remember that Jesus is bigger, that to stay trusting him is glorious life, and help us to feel the, the terror of ever leaving Jesus and so find death. May we hold fast to our Lord Jesus, who holds fast to us. Father, in your name, amen.